Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host Grant Pemberton and today we're going to be talking about the courts of heaven. Where are they? Can you get there? And do they really exist? Ken, what do you think? Courts of heaven. First of all, I don't really know what it is. Can you Okay. Well, for those listeners who somehow have been living under a rock and don't know what it is, <laughs> I guess that makes you a salamander, Grant. Yeah, uh, yeah. The courts of heaven is a teaching that has become very widespread uh, within the wider body of charismatic Christianity. And I might add, it spilled over into some other kind of mainstream denominations and whatnot to some extent. Um, and it teaches, succinctly, it teaches that there are literal courts in heaven, courtrooms in heaven. And when we need something to be done in prayer, we must go into the courtroom and secure the judgment of a judge known as a writ, W-R-I-T, a writ, W-R-I-T. And so when we secure that writ, then what we have asked for will be effected on the earth. Where does this come from? The Bible? Um, well, people try to support it with a few Bible verses, but as you can tell, I'm not a fan of this kind of teaching. So let's just, we'll get that out of the way. Courts of Heaven, uh, is it bad teaching is it false doctrine is it heresy what do you think yes okay so it's important enough that we need to to probably if you're doing it think about not doing it if it's we're talking heresy right let me tell you a story um i had 11 people that i would have called them i mean it, it sounds weird and self-serving and i don't mean it to sound that way but you know, they were, they were friends of mine and followers of mine, disciples, if you will. Um, they lived in another city in another country. Um, and there was a well-known courts of heaven teacher who was going to be coming to their city and they were considering whether to go to the event. And so they contacted me and said, what would you do? And I said, if I were you, I would stay away. And uh, they went anyway, which, you know, I have no ability to command them or direct them. It wasn't because I, you know, don't go to that teacher's meeting, you know, you're, you'll no longer follow me. It had nothing to do with any of that. It was just that I didn't think it was healthy. I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was sound. Well, anyway, they went to the meeting. About a month later, I arrived in that country, in that city. 11 out of 11 of them needed to be delivered of spirits of Gnosticism, Gnostic spirits. So the courts of heaven teaching is nothing more or less than a modern recapitulation or, or updating of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. Interesting. Can you give us, for those that aren't scholars like myself, could you give <laughs> a primer on uh, Gnosticism? What are you talking about? Um, Gnosticism, well, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis or Gnosis. Um, you might remember the planet Geonosis from the Star Wars movies. Uh, anyway, Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And Gnosis is knowledge that is natural knowledge or it's naturally acquired knowledge. There's also revelatory knowledge, which is epignosis, but we're not talking about that. 
Although the thing about Gnosis is it purports to be revelatory. It carries that sense of the higher level. And so in the ancient times, um, Paul wrote the book of Colossians specifically to combat the Gnostic heresy. And in the book of Colossians, um, Paul is coming against this idea that you need something in addition to the finished work of Jesus to get you where you need to get to. And so what courts of heaven teaching does is it says, you know, when you, when you pray, it's not enough just to come before your father and say, father, may your name be held holy. Uh, may your kingdom come and may your will be done and give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation. That prayer alone is the way Jesus taught us to pray. Now that doesn't mean there aren't other prayers to be prayed. That would be silly to say that, but it means that that's, that's the model of prayer. That's the archetype of prayer. And with it, we can see that it's based in, on the relationship of God as our father. We don't go to him as a judge in a courtroom. We go to him as our father. Additionally, there are no examples anywhere in scripture, not from Jesus, not from the apostles, even in the Old Testament, where we see people praying in a sense where they go to a courtroom. This is not suggested, it's not contemplated. It's, it's completely outside the realm of biblical revelation. And with that, we can understand that in heaven, there are no courtrooms in the sense that if you think of when you go down to, for me, it's on Maple Street in Torrance, California, uh, I can't remember the address, but maybe it's 825 or 325 Maple Street. There is a building and in it, there are many courtrooms. There are superior court courtrooms. There are municipal court courtrooms. And when you need to get things done in a court, you go there and there is a judge in every courtroom along with a bailiff. And, you know, you present your case with or without a lawyer and the other side presents their case with or without a lawyer and the judge adjudicates it. That's what this is suggesting. And there is nowhere in scripture that this is contemplated. So uh, how do people get the idea <clears throat> literal courtrooms in heaven? And I mean, we know that God is, you know, ultimately a judge, right? He's going to judge the, the world and put things right and uh, all of that. And we do have, I guess, the parable of the persistent widow. Um, mm -hmm. which the story in the parable of the persistent widow it, the, the whole point of it is that that guy was a this scoundrel. That judge was a scoundrel. And Jesus says at the end of the parable, will not the fa your father hear the cries of his elect and answer speedily? Mm -hmm. So they don't need to petition him as a judge. He's and, and by the way, let's talk about parables for a moment. Parables are word pictures. They're like metaphors. I mean, in earlier podcasts, you and I have discussed spiritual warfare and deliverance. And I often will use an extended military metaphor. Do I literally believe that there are bunkers in people's bodies? No, I don't believe that there are literal bunkers. Are there reinforced strongholds? Yes, the scripture even talks about that, strongholds in the mind. But, but I don't actually believe that there are made of concrete and steel bunkers in which there are you know, soldiers hiding and we are to go in and you know deal with those bunkers. I'm using an extended metaphor to describe something based on something many people might understand because they have some familiarity with war, whether because they've been a soldier 
or maybe they've watched movies. But that is not the same thing as saying that I believe that we are literally fighting a war with RPGs and, you know, missiles. Right. And so in the same way you're saying when Jesus is using a parable, it's just a picture for us to be able to understand complex subjects. That's right. And that's what he does in all of his parables. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Well, the kingdom of heaven isn't leaven. It's akin to leaven. And what does leaven do? It makes its way through the whole lump of dough until it suffuses everything. That doesn't mean the kingdom is leaven. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It grows until it becomes the largest of all bushes and the birds of the air rest in it. Well, okay, fair enough. That's a word picture. And, and I think we all understand that the kingdom of heaven is not literally a mustard plant and that we could go pick seeds off it, grind them and make mustard. And so is this where they've gotten this idea and this, in this, I guess, doctrine or whatever about uh, the, the courts of heaven from this parable of the persistent widow? That's one of the places. Um, one of the other places is, um, you know, the word court is used a few places in the scripture to describe, you know, heaven, or at least a part of heaven. But we need to be really clear here. And, and, it, and it's, it's an indicator of just how low the level of education has sunk in our Western world that people don't understand the word court. Because they're, well, first of all, we do see courts mentioned in the Bible. Um, Moses served in Pharaoh's court. He was playing tennis. I'm obviously kidding. Um, Moses served in the court of Pharaoh in this sense. A court, if you are dealing with a king, is the place where the king or queen holds court. It's where the courtiers gather around them. It's where they sit on their throne and receive visitors and guests. But they're not functioning as a judge. I mean, it's true that a king could issue a decree. That's not in doubt. But that is not a courtroom. We don't go to a court in order to uh, meet a king. If you go to meet a king, you go to the room where they sit in that way. So I have a friend who at one time was close with the royal family. That's no longer true. But times have changed and some of the people have moved on as we all know. And so, you know, you can go to Buckingham Palace and you can go visit the queen there where she is holding court. And there's a specific room set aside for it. Um, there's another place um, in the Tower of London that you can visit and there are a couple of others and all of them are, you know, lavishly decorated and, you know, studiously appointed and they'd have about what you'd expect, a lot of gold, a lot of reds, um, you know, velour or velvet um, in the wallpaper, you know, lavish carpets, et cetera. Okay, this is because it's royalty. But these are the courts of the queen. And if you were appointed to be ambassador to England, your literal title would be ambassador to the court of St. James. That's what your title would be. And so in that sense, we are going to the court, but I wanna be really clear again, we are not talking about a courtroom. We are talking about the court where the king or queen holds court. And then the third sense of the word court. So the first one is the joke I played, like a tennis court or a basketball court or a volleyball court. The second sense is the court where a king or queen, where a sovereign sits enthroned and reigns and might periodically issue decrees and whatnot, but also receives visitors and so forth. And then the third sense of the word court 
is the one that is being used in all of this teaching, that there is a courtroom. But again, I'm going to say, you know, if we, are, if we are going to take the Bible as our rule of faith and our rule of practice of what we believe, if this is what we are doing, then we need to look at what does the Bible show us how to practice our faith. And there's not one single instance in the prayers of Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, or James, or Jude for that matter. I'm thinking of all the writers of the New Testament. There's not one single case where anybody suggests, models, or indicates that there are courtrooms in heaven and we need to go secure anything in the form of a writ from a judge. And this has gotten so far out there now that there's a guy who's come out and he was on uh, a popular Christian TV show recently. Uh, he was talking about securing restraining orders in the courts of heaven. Not only do you need to get a writ, now you need to get a restraining order so the devil can't harm you. And yet the scripture says this, we live under this thing called the finished work of Christ. Jesus died once for all, and everything we need was secured in that death. So why do we need to go get a writ? Isn't it enough that we have the blood of Christ? All right, so as we're sitting here talking about this, and I didn't know this is like this is really interesting. Um, the question comes because I mean, it's sitting here saying this, and I know intelligent people are are practicing this. But it seems pretty far-fetched for, I mean, I don't understand how people could actually do this. And um, why do you think people are doing this? Why do you think people are? Oh, that's easy. That's so easy because people are desperate. Everybody's desperate. Everybody has needs that they need answered or, you know, prayers that they need to have answered. It might be a prayer for their child's healing, for the job promotion they've been expecting, uh, it might be that their spouse who is straying would come back. You know, it may be many different things, but people want to know what's the secret sauce? What's the formula so I can get God to answer my prayers? That's what drives all of this. So this is the only, the, this is the latest technology. And the thing is, people don't realize that they've actually revived or resuscitated an ancient heresy because uh, what Gnosticism taught was that you know, the, the, the uh, belief in Jesus and the work of the cross wasn't enough. You need this specialized knowledge. You need to do it this way. These are the seven steps or the nine emanations that you need to ascend through as you rise in the heavens and, you know, ultimately come to the place that you need to be. That was at the core of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had two primary expressions in kind of the period immediately after the New Testament. One was that the flesh uh, didn't matter, and so you could do anything you want, and it would lead to lawlessness, or antinomianism is the fancy word for it. The other form of it was that the flesh was evil and must be killed or suppressed because only the spirit matters. And what the Hebrew understanding of the human system, I'm not even gonna say body, but the human system, what the Hebrew understanding is that what God created, he created good. There's nothing wrong with the body. Now, it can be used badly. There's no doubt about that. And people can sin in their body and through their body and with their body. There's no doubt about that. But the body is not evil. So we don't need to suppress it. 
but neither should we ignore it because in fact, when we ignore the body, we get into a whole nother kind of mischief and difficulty. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, even it is true that when we, we do want things uh, to work and we're, we are trying to find out what, what are we doing that's not working. And so it does come out of a good motivation. I'll even, I even think the first few times that I was with you, um, honestly, you tripped me up when I was trying to pray for people after, um, after we were together, not all, you didn't do it on purpose. Um, but I got in my head, I kept thinking like, what was, what's the right thing to say? Like what, you know, what would Ken say? What's the magic words here in this praying for this sick person or whatever. And the more we got together, the more I realized, well, you're just actually just praying in the spirit and trying to hear what the Lord's saying, you know? And I actually, I talked to a lot of people who, when they first encounter your teaching, it, the same thing, they kind of get tripped up and like, I'm not sure where to go. Is this Mason stuff? Is right. there, you know what I mean? But as, as opposed to just leaning in and listening to the Lord. So I can certainly relate to the idea of saying, what do we got to do to make, make this stuff work? Um, but I can also- One of the big problems that we always have, and I think, I think a lot of spirituality worldwide goes this way, it isn't just Christians. But one of the big problems we have is that there are uh, many people who want to reduce faith into a formula, and faith is not a formula. In fact, I, I used to have a seminary professor who said Christianity is not magic. And what he was, what he was really after there was he had been a missionary in you know, various lands where magic was often practiced. And with it, their faith practice becomes very formulaic. Say these prayers this way. And in fact, I've heard one of the most prominent teachers of courts of heaven say, well, if you don't pray these prayers this way verbatim, it won't work. Mm. Well, that's not really any different from if you're involved in witchcraft, um, where, you know, you get out the book of spells. And if you say the spell incorrectly, then really bad things are going to happen to you because you will find that, uh, the demons that you're trying to control through the spell will break loose and kind of run wild and do what they want to do and harm you. Right now, I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not calling this teaching specifically witchcraft in that sense, but there are aspects of it that track along the same trajectory. And so, you know, we aren't, we aren't. You're trying to get the power to do what you want. Right. Right. I mean, that's maybe well motivated, but nonetheless, you're trying to to twist God's arm into getting something you want happening by going through some sort of process, you know. Okay, that's yeah. it. So, so then, um, I guess I'm trying to think about how, how this works. Uh, let Let's say that someone has. Um, found a modicum of success in this tactic, uh, what would you say uh, to that? Because I do know um, that there are some claims about this uh, that, you know, it works. And, and there's a lot of claiming out there. How does, how does that work? How do we balance that in our, in our minds? Well, At the end of the day, all of this stuff works through faith. And of course, there have been a whole movement that's wanted to push things into building your faith. But I really like the idea of trust. 
more than faith as the word. I mean, faith is the word, pistis in Greek. But, uh, but the, the word that we really want to go after is trust. Because when we trust God and we're in right, a right relationship with him, we find that our prayers are answered. In fact, I have a teaching on this on my website called Confidence in Prayer. Um, but, you know, even the Bible itself says, if we ask according to his will, we can ask anything we want and we will get what we ask for. But of course, the key unstated assumption in that is we have to pray according to his will. And that means we have to be aligned with that will. <clears throat> Many times people don't know the will of God. In fact, even Moses had to say, Lord, teach me your ways. You tell me that I've found favor in your sight. Well, glad to hear that. But teach me your ways in order that I may find favor in your sight. I think a, a, a more modern way of saying that is, given that I've found favor in your sight, would you teach me your ways so that I can follow you more closely and find yet more favor in your sight? Right. As I have yet more favor in your sight, presumably it's going to, it's going to turn out that my prayers get answered that otherwise weren't being answered. Mm. No, that's good. So, so the whole idea in this it, of, of the courts of heaven is to try and find the right formula to get what we want, as opposed to a relational component with the father uh, and the Holy spirit and Jesus in order to do what they want. Is that, would that be a correct uh, outline of the difference between these two? Wait a minute, say that to me again so I'm sure I answer it correctly. Well, it sounds like the courts of heaven is you have to go through a certain procedure in order to get what you want. The other way that we're talking, when you said, like you said before, Christianity is a magic. It's more of relational and we're, we're learning to walk with God um, and through his spirit in order to really do his works that he wants. And maybe that's exactly what we want at the moment. Most time in my experience, it's not quite exactly what I want. Thank goodness. <laughs> seems to know better. And, um, but it's more of a relational following discipleship type of a, a model. It, it, would that be the key difference between these two? Yeah, I think so. You know, Jesus said at the Last Supper, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And I don't think we need to come before God as an abject petitioner, hoping that the court will have mercy on us. I think we come to him as friends, praying according to his will, of course, um, because that that's implied. You know, you and I are friends, and I would never do anything that, at least not knowingly, I would never do anything to violate, you know, your standards and ethics that would violate our friendship, that would cause a breach or a rupture in that relationship. So when we say that we're friends with Jesus, we mean that we live in, in a way that will be, you know, pleasing unto him and to the Father. Um, but if we're asking, if we're living in that relationship and our lives conform to it, I think a lot of people want to say, well, I have right relationship because of the forensic value of the blood of Christ. Okay, good enough, fair enough. But but the fact of the matter is, if we do not walk according to the truth, then our lives are a lie and we can't actually say we are friends of God. So in this walking with God, what we are trying to do is we're trying to conform our lives to a pattern that he has already given us 
and we are trying to think his thoughts after him. Our thoughts run down a pathway that mirror his thoughts. And because our thoughts mirror his thoughts, we pray in a manner that is consistent with the way he would view these things. And how do we know his thoughts? We know them by the word of God that we call the Bible. Yeah, and you know, I guess this is this is under the category we're, we're talking about, I think a keenly charismatic uh, thing that's happening with this courts of heaven. And when we talk about prophetic teaching and prophecies and all that, you know, most of the time we say, or we should say, you know, it, it has to come under the authority of the scriptures. It can't be extra biblical in, in what we're doing. And th this seems pretty extra biblical. And totally extra biblical. That's one of its issues. And so it's, it's, it's one of the, I mean, I guess it might be labeled as like, this is a new prophetic teaching that I've found, you know, as a key to the kingdom or whatever, but it's so, I mean, it's so extra biblical. I don't think it, it should be received as such. Is that well, right? Well, and, and the thing is, you know, I mean, look, I've had a lot of people come to my meetings uh, and they, they approach me and they say, I was told to come talk to you about courts of heaven because I've been doing it and it isn't working. And I think this is one of the big I mean, it's a sad thing, but it's true. A lot of people are doing courts of heaven, but are they really getting results? Now, I guess probably some people must be, or they, they wouldn't continue teaching it. But, but I have so many people come and say, you know, we're doing courts of heaven and, you know, we've gone to the courts or we need to go to the courts. This has kind of become the new, you know, shorthand jargon for what we're talking about. And there's just no, there's no court to go to. And so, you know, people are not getting answers to their prayers now. And so they're confused by this. And they're like, but I thought I had the like super ultra nitro thermonuclear whiz bang formula for prayer. And it's like, no, the super ultra nitro formula for prayer is this. Jesus, you are my friend and you've invited me into the same relationship with the father that you had. And when you prayed, you said, Father, you heard, you hear me, and I know you always hear me, and I'm only praying this so they'll know that you always hear me, and now I'm going to pray Lazarus come forth, and Lazarus comes forth, and it's based on that dependence of the Son with the Father, and we are called to be icons, carbon copies of him. Icon is a Greek word, and that's literally what it means. What you look at is an exact representation of what that is. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, and we are called to be exact representations of him. This is, this is where God wants to take us. And in that, we find that we, we get our answers prayed because our thoughts are his thoughts, our ways are his ways. And with that, we have the congruence, which allows breakthrough to happen. Mm. It's a completely relationally based model. Right. Which is, which is, we're not really good with nuance, Ken. I mean, people aren't good with that relational nuance. And we just want the formula. We just want the, the five easy steps. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, how many times have I taught a healing seminar and I tell people, I'm going to teach you how to fish. I'm going to teach you how to pray for the sick. And you'll see things start to happen. And the more you go with this, the better you'll get with it. And you know what ends up happening at the end? No one listened to anything. Well, not no one, but many people will not have listened. And people come up and they say, pray for me. And I'm like, well, okay, I pray for the sick, but I tend to do it more as modeling than just as a service provider where you can come and, 
you know, get what you need and then go off. And, and, you know, I, many times I will pray for those people because that's what Jesus did. And I'm trying to model what Jesus did, but you know, if they, if I come back to that same church or same city months later, and I, those same people come up for prayer, I'll say, well, how did you go with practicing what I taught? Oh, I haven't done any of that. I just wanted you to pray for me. And that's, that's the way people live. They're, they're not, they're not actually engaged in the process of, of trying to live as Jesus lived and to do what, what Jesus taught. I mean, I know that sounds really harsh and I'm sorry, I don't, I don't want it to sound that way, but you know, we have an almost unlimited capacity to walk away from discipleship. The whole story of the Exodus is all about that. What were they constantly doing in the desert? Oh, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Let's make a golden calf and dance around it. And we'll call that God, even though the Lord had explicitly already told him, you can't have any other gods except me. Right. But we have a better idea. Let's let's have a golden cow. Okay. And then, you know, later on, it becomes, you know, something else. Let's have a rebellion against Moses. And so the earth opens up and swallows 250 of the followers of Korah. And that's the end of that. Wow. Okay. Well, that didn't work out too well either, did it? And so this is the whole story of humanity. And God has always been looking for that relational dynamic. He wants us to be friends. And, you know, when you're friends, you, you kind of understand what each other are thinking. You, you don't even need to, um, sometimes you don't even need to say anything. If you've got a really good relationship with your spouse, there may be times where somebody will say something on television or in a sermon or, you know, you're at a whatever, some other event. And, you just kind of look at each other. You don't even need to say anything. You know what each other are thinking. That's where God wants to get to with us. And yet so many people say, I can't hear God, or I don't know what the mind of God is. And I'm like, well, it's in the word of God. And so often people say to me things like, gosh, I can't believe the teaching you're bringing. It's so profound. And I go, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't think I'm a particularly good speaker. I mean, I'm, I'm okay, but I'm not like top tier i'm not tony robbins or somebody like that you're pretty Maybe good that's good tony robbins but you're pretty good well all right but but you know mostly the reason people say that is because i'm articulating the mind and the will of god from scripture maybe in a way that they've never been able to grasp before and they realize oh that's what that's all about that's what the christian life is yeah no i i agree i mean i i remember um several years ago, I was going, going to some prophetic conference or something like that. And I remember thinking like, I was like, man, I need a word, like, uh, I need a word from the Lord. And, and I got just extremely convicted. And the Lord said, well, just talk to me. You know, <laughs> if you need a word, like, what are you going to someone else for? Like, I, you got a relationship with me, like, what do you need? You know, and it was just, uh, it was a paradigm shift for me to be like, well, that's, that's true. <laughs> You know, I have the, the spirit of God that lives inside of me. I guess I could consult him, you know. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> so uh, and it was, you know, not, not to say it's not great, but but now most of the, the words I get are confirming. They're not uh, directive. You know what I mean? It's not like because the Lord's, you know, communing with the Lord, you know. So it, there is something about that where. It takes time to build relationship. It takes effort and energy. And Absolutely, it does. And there's no substitute for time spent with a friend. Right, yeah. I mean, I've got friends that I spend what time I can, but I, I always feel the lack for not being with them. And I always feel the uh, the sense of, I wonder what I'm missing in their life that, that I 
might have known had I been with them more. And, you know, Moses was called a friend of God. And, you know, the Lord confided in Moses, get out of my way, I'm going to wipe out this nation. And then Moses says, well, wait a minute, Lord, that's inconsistent with who you are. What will the nation say anyway? And so Moses can talk God, you know, back from that point of view. And you say, how, how do you do that? Well, you do it by being in, an influence in someone's life. I mean, you know, you at times have contacted me and said, hey, I'm thinking about buying this or that, whatever. And which would you recommend? And I tell you, and then you go and do that. Why? Because I have influence in your life. Why? Because we built that, that together. So I know it sounds kind of weird, but do, do people want to be influencers of God? Because I think friends of God can actually go to him with maybe outrageous petitions at times. And the Lord will say, you know, because it's you who are asking, I will do it. Yeah. E.M. Bounds had that kind of relationship. Um, John Hyde, also known as Praying Hyde, had that kind of relationship. George Muller had that kind of relationship. I think Epaphroditus and St. Paul had that kind of relationship. Yeah. No, that's good. And we, we do, we are always looking for a shortcut. Yep. We're always looking to, to bifurcate and to get around and to not take those time to spend. And so, of course, we're coming up with formulas like the courts of heaven to pray. If I could just go get this writ, it'll happen. That's and, right. I mean, that it's the same. It's, it's the reason why, you know, there's all of these diet plans and then all of these, uh, it's the same deal. Just eat less, move more, you'll lose weight. But we want the the quick fix. Same same thing with our, our spirituality, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So we started this by you telling us about some of your friends, close friends, uh, who got went to a conference about the courts of heaven and then needed to be delivered. Uh, I'm sure there are people that have, have maybe even read the books or done the courts of heaven prayer. And they're sitting here going, Oh geez, how many demons do I have inside? Listen, of me? I have this happen all the time when it comes up, people are like, Oh my gosh, well, I've got a whole shelf full of those books. I've got them all too. You know why I have them though? I have them not because I'm practicing courts of heaven prayer, but because if I'm going to critique it as robustly as I am doing, I ought at least to have given the guy a fair hearing and know what he's saying so I'm not just spouting off. I've also, by the way, heard him speak on three occasions just to make sure that I'm not somehow off kilter with what I'm hearing. And, and I wanna add something else here. Now, the, the most prominent speaker on this in the United States anyhow um, is one particular individual, but there's another guy who comes out of New Zealand who was the originator of Courts of Heaven teaching. And that individual, the, the New Zealander, or Kiwi as they call them, that guy, he, um, by his own admission, he says it in his book, which I also have his books. Uh, he says that he was one of the highest ranking warlocks in New Zealand, and then he got converted. And, you know, having read his books, I, I, I think I believe that he's a believer. I, I think he probably was converted but I'm not sure that he was ever delivered of the spirits that he had that gave him his powers as a warlock. That's not the same thing as salvation. One is healing, or excuse me, one is salvation and one is deliverance. And generally the deliverance follows the salvation, although on occasion you'll see them reversed. 
So I think he got saved. I'm not sure he got totally delivered. <clears throat> and so this teaching that he originated on courts of heaven, I'm not completely sure if he is a plant sent to the church or if this is, you know, something else going on here that may be, you know, more sinister than that. But, but maybe he, you know, he got saved, but with that, the spirits are still speaking through him and teaching this kind of stuff with the specific objective of deceiving large swaths of the faithful. And a lot of times people say, well, you know, the faithful can't be deceived. Oh, yes, they can. Jesus said that in the last days, there would be many who would fall away and be deceived because of all that was going on in the earth. And so on this one, I think it's a fairly open and shut case. It originated with a warlock or ex-warlock who I don't think was ever delivered. And some of his other teachings are, I guess I would say, very odd at best. And then people say, well, but you know, he's a really nice guy. This is not a function of how, whether you're nice or not. Some of the you know, biggest swindlers and con artists in history have been really nice people. Well, why can't you be a spiritual swindler and a con artist and be a nice guy at the same time? It's, it's a lot easier actually to con people if you're you know, amenable and, and, and nice, that helps. But, um, that's uh, yeah, and if the faithful can't be deceived, what do we have all of like the uh, epistles of the New Testament? Right. Basically writing out like, hey, 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 Quit sleeping with your mother-in-law, yeah. you know, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, it's like, uh, okay, or was it stepmom? Oh, Ananias, you tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. That's going to cost you your life. <laughs> so, yeah, we can be deceived. We don't, we need to be mindful of that. Um, okay. So what, what do people need to do? Like, I'm sure people are, could be freaking out right now. Right. So if people have been into the courts of heaven, the first thing I would do is stop praying those prayers and go back to praying based on relationship and stop trying to ascend into the heavens. I mean, this is part of the whole thing that people talk about how they ascended. Well, the, the language of ascension as described is, is exactly what is found in Gnostic literature from the second and third century AD. Let's, let's go there for a minute. Okay because I've heard this too people like it's like people are trying to go to heaven in their minds or something like that yeah but um is that what they're trying to do well they're they're trying to go to heaven and are they going for real or are they going in their minds I mean the way the teaching goes you would be led to believe that they are supposed to be going literally to heaven and I'm not saying people can't go to heaven. I mean, I, I had one experience in Africa uh, where I was caught up to the gates of heaven and I was looking at them and they were massive and big and then the gates opened and I went through the gates, you know, into heaven. All right. So, but I'm not going to teach that as a go-to prayer strategy. I'm just going to say it happened to me. And well, Paul talks about being caught up into heaven. Right. So, I mean, clearly, yes, you can go to heaven in the most literal sense of the word. I am not denying that at all. But when we teach people the, the, the know-how or the technology for doing so, I think we're on thinner ice, much thinner ice. But the idea that you have to go into heaven and then go to the courts, and I don't mean the courts of God, the, the ones that are described, say, in Job 1 and Job 2, 
but I mean the, the courtroom in which God is serving as judge, this is just not there at all. And, you know, in the book of Colossians, Paul says this, he says, don't let anyone defraud you of the prize. And what is the prize? It's connection to Jesus, because he's talking over and over again about being connected to the head. Don't let anyone defraud you from the, the, the prize by going on and on about visions of angels he has supposedly seen. And to me, the biggest word in that whole statement is the word supposedly. Paul is basically saying in modern American you know, parlance, I'm calling BS on some of these visions people are saying they're having. I don't think they're real. And I don't think when people are going to heaven, they may be imagining going to heaven. They may be hoping they're going to heaven. And there will be some small percentage who possibly are going to heaven because again, I, you know, life has a certain randomness to it and maybe someone got lucky. But I don't think most of these people who are going to heaven are going to heaven in the most literal sense, not at all. Well, I mean, it's like Paul says there, he was caught up uh, which which gives the sense that maybe he didn't initiate it, right? And you 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 went to heaven. You I don't think you initiated that, right? Did not initiate it. I was in a worship service. It was an absolutely blistering, over the top worship service. I was worshiping. I wasn't paying attention to anyone around me. And in that, I started dancing a little bit, which is very uncharacteristic for me. A little bit dancing, and then I raised my arms, and as I did. That was it. I was taken. Yeah. yeah. I had another time it happened to me in Byron Bay, Australia, um, before a service. That, that church is known for its unusual, just completely over-the-top worship that is like supercharged anointed, thermonuclear anointed. And I went there to preach, and the band was warming up. They hadn't even started the service. And as they were warming up, I closed my eyes and I fell into a vision in which I saw what looked to be a flue or like the, a chimney type thing. And I saw, I saw this flue and I looked and it was, of course, kind of black on the bottom. And I saw smoke rising up into it. And I, I walked over and I looked up. And as I looked up, I saw a pair of feet. And they were gold. And I thought, this must, this must be what Moses saw in Exodus, where it describes that the, the 70 elders of Israel went up with him and they saw God's feet yeah. above the sapphire pavement. Yeah. And as I looked at the feet, all of a sudden I lost consciousness and I was sucked up the flue. And people told me later that my body collapsed to the floor and they couldn't wake me up. I was in a trance. Wow. And an hour and 45 minutes later, the practice set had ended. The worship set was ending and they were bringing it in for a landing. And I don't know, I, I was supposed to preach. So I guess God decided to send me back. And I sort of came to and shook myself and looked around. And I, it took me probably a full 15 seconds to reorient. Like, where am I? What was that? What just happened? I went to heaven. That's what happened. And I, as it were, went up a flu. But I'm not going to teach that everybody has to go up to heaven through a flu. That was the vision I saw. Well, I mean, apparently we could write a book about it and, you know, find the flu. There we go. Find the flu. Find the flu. Find the flow. How about that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it. Yeah. Every time I've been and you don't talk about it much because people think you're weird. But every time it's happened to me, it's been his doing. I've never had any control over it. Yep. And um, I'm always thankful it happened. But it, I can't. I can't 
can't find it on my own. He's got to be in, involved in the process. So, um, so that's good to kind of, cause people, there is a lot of teaching about going to heaven. Uh, it's really, it's really in right now. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm at, oddly enough, I'm less concerned about the teaching around going to heaven. And I'm more concerned about the teaching around going to the courts in heaven. Mm -hmm. Just don't, if you go to heaven, don't try to find the traffic court. <laughs> That's right. Every single time you broke the speed limit, you're going to get a ticket when you walk in. Yeah. I don't like to go to court period. It's been, it's a pretty terrible experience for me, but um, yeah. Okay. So less and less concerned about going to heaven. I think that's kind of an interesting point. Cause again, well, it's only because I've known some people who I've never, I've never come to a firm conclusion about their teaching, but they, you know, they seem to teach that you can do this and go to heaven. And I'm like, well, we're currently we have an unusually prophetic life. Maybe, you know, something I don't know. I don't want to be too rigid about that stuff on the boundaries. The scripture says, accept him whose faith is weak and not for purposes of passing judgment on disputable matters. So to me, there's no doubt that people go to heaven. I, I maybe in a sense of it, uh, not only did Paul get caught up to heaven, Enoch got caught up to heaven. Elijah got caught up to heaven. Um, something happened with Isaiah in the temple um, we know that um, we know that Paul fell into a trance in the the temple at one point, and the Lord told him to get out of Jerusalem. Now, whether that was the time that he went to heaven or not, I don't know, but he describes that one. So we we've got that. We've got John the Revelator on Patmos, and he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and suddenly Jesus is behind him. But after he gets his you know seven letters dictated to him that he's going to send out to these seven churches. He says, afterward, I saw a door standing open in heaven saying, come up here. And immediately I was in the spirit and I was in heaven. So I've just rattled off without even thinking deeply about it. I don't know, seven or eight, I wasn't counting them. Uh, examples of people going to heaven in the Bible. And so maybe there is something to this. There's more to it than I realize or have come to know myself. I like you think it ought to be that we are summoned. John was come up here. And so he went, Enoch was taken, Elijah was taken. I mean, most of these appear to be exactly what you said, but maybe there is something that I don't quite get and I don't want to be uh, passing judgment on disputable matters. So I'm willing to let the go to heaven thing sit at least for now, but the courts of heaven, forget it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good distinction too, because, um, you know, that's, that's something that, uh, you know, pe people, it, it kind of all goes together, right? You go to heaven, you go to the court, and then you get the red, all that sort of stuff. So it's, I think it's good to distinguish between those two things. Um, okay, well, that's, I think this, we've, we've pretty much covered it all. Um, anything else that you have to say about uh, courts of heaven? Um, no, probably. I mean, I've got a teaching on it that's going to, come out pretty soon. Uh, so if people want to hear the longer version of this with all the scriptural citations and want to hear about some more of the ins and outs of it, uh, they might want to get that teaching. It'll be available on my website soon. And that's orbisministries.org. Now we, we did say, we, I don't think we finished uh, talking about people have been in, involved in this. 
the first thing they should do is to stop it. Oh, um, yeah. The second thing, is there a repentance that needs to be involved? Yeah, I, w- I mean, I would go to the Lord and repent for having prayed in this way and say, Lord, I want to be your friend, not, you know, treat you as a judge. So that that would be a prayer thing they can do on their own. If they have books on this, um, I would suggest getting rid of them. And I don't mean selling them at the local, you know, op shop or getting what you can on eBay. I think you should probably burn them or shred them because these books are filled with error. They're just wrong. And then uh, if there is an ongoing problem with your own spirituality, your ability to hear God, uh, you start finding you're getting maybe skin breakouts or you're having diseases and things, you might've picked up that Gnostic spirit and it may be manifesting in that way, or your thinking is clouded and you're having difficulty receiving scriptural truth. You might be under the influence of a Gnostic spirit. And in that case, you're going to need to go find somebody who knows how to minister deliverance and get free. I know everybody wants to do self-deliverance, but I've said this before many times, most of the time, self-deliverance isn't a thing. If it happens, all right, fine, but it's not the primary model of deliverance that we see in the Bible. So it shouldn't be the primary model of deliverance that we're pursuing. And I I would even go so far in this instance, especially, um, you're going to need relationship. And, and so this is a great, I I think it's, it's especially for something that tries to bifurcate our need for relationship. I think you need the relational component of deliverance partnerships. Yeah. Then maybe something else, you know, because I think, I just think those things are, are hard to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe at some point we'll do that podcast on friend of God and we can talk more about what that means, but I think we've actually touched some of the important points of it. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus said one time, Lord, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say. And so I, we live in a time where there is great lawlessness. This, by the way, is a symptom of the fact that we're living in a Gnostic world. Because again, I said that Gnosticism has two forms. One is the suppression of the flesh and the other is that it doesn't matter at all. And yet we have people left, right, and center in, in what are purporting to be churches saying, it doesn't matter if I sleep around. It doesn't matter if I'm doing this or that. It doesn't matter that I had this experience or that I went to a necromancer or whatever. It's all good because it's all under the blood. Well, that thinking itself, it's by its very nature is Gnostic. Because if you look, just read, just read through the book of Hebrews in one sitting, turn off your phone. Don't be on Facebook and Instagram for a night and read the book of Hebrews. And you will see over and over again, how much the book of Hebrews is emphasizing living holy, living righteous, living according to the right decrees of the Lord. And I fear we live in a time in which this is just not a thing. It's just not that well propounded and pastors are afraid to bring it up because they're afraid they'll lose people and offend them. Yeah. We, f- we forget the road really is narrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's- yeah. yeah. And uh, wide is the path to destruction. And so we do need to be careful uh, and be, be choosy and, and be thoughtful in what we choose to participate in. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we could all do with a little more holiness, a little less licentiousness. Totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. And of course, the, the thing we don't want to fall into is legalism, which says, well, you know, I'm okay with God because I'm following the rules. No, we have relationship with God. And because we don't want to breach the relationship, we do things as he would have them done. 
I mean, you've been married to Sarah for how long? 13 years. 13 years. Okay. So in 13 years, you know a thing or two about what Sarah likes and doesn't like. Mm-hmm. And make- you know that if you do certain things, she's going to get angry. And, you know, sometimes you may do them anyway, figuring I just want to tw- tweak her. Or you may, because you have that side to you, or you may decide mm-hmm. it, it's a calculated risk in the wider context. I'm, I'm willing to bear the risk of that anger if it comes out. But most of the time when people have been married for, you know, 13 years, um, you know, they've learned what each other likes and doesn't like. And so you pick up your clothes off the floor instead of leaving them strewn everywhere. Or if she doesn't care, then maybe it's something else. You don't squeeze the toothpaste tube in the middle. You squeeze it, roll it up from the end, or you put the toilet paper in so it hangs off the wall this way versus backward with the, you know, the loose square of it closest to the wall. Or if it isn't that, you know that she likes the lawn mowed every week, not every other week, not every 10 days. So you make it a point to mow the lawn every 10 days. Why? Well, because happy wife, happy life. And you've learned that in keeping relationship with Sarah, your marriage will thrive and prosper. But if you don't keep relationship with her, then your marriage is going to founder and be miserable. And, you know, there's a lot of marriages that, that are in trouble these days where people haven't learned that basic lesson that when you get married, a big part of what you're agreeing to do when you, when you agree to forsake all others, that means in forsaking yourself too. And, and in that, you make choices consistent with what will make the relationship thrive. And by the way, it needs to go both ways. It's not good enough if you do it for Sarah and she never does it for you. And, you know, Beth and I just celebrated our 33rd anniversary. So, all right, in 33 years, do you think the both of us have a pretty good idea of what not to do to disrupt our marriage? Yeah, we do. Yeah. And so we've chosen consciously not to do those things in order that our marriage would thrive. Well, guess what? This is the way it works with God. This is why marriage is a model of Christ in the church, because God wants us to understand you can actually learn the ways of God. And you can actually learn what pleases him. And you can actually be an influence on him in the sense that Moses was. And you can actually learn um, how to pray and get your prayers answered. That's good. And and it's it's just, you know, over and over again, I'll I'll go places and and I'll talk to people and, and I'll say, you know, you can know the ways of God. And it's like, what? Nobody ever told me that. What are you talking about? I can know the ways of God. Yeah, yeah, you can know the ways of God and you can know what pleases him. And in so doing, you can find peace for your soul and you can find victory in life. I had no idea. What are you talking about? No, my pastor never told me that. I'm like, well, either you weren't listening or, you know, something's wrong. I'm looking for a, there's a song. I can't find it. But it's, uh, I've got it in a note somewhere here. But basically, it says, you know, show me your ways. Teach me your ways, oh God. So it's Exodus 33. Well, it's echoed again in the psalm. And it, and he's, oh, teach me your ways, oh God, and I will walk in your truth. Yeah. And it, yeah. And, uh, what's interesting in, um, in one translation, it says, teach me your ways, oh God, comma, how you work and how you move. Yes. I can do, you know what I mean? It's, it's, yes. That that was our our verse for so long. I should have it memorized, but uh, but it, I don't. But it's uh, but that's that whole thing. Is how are you working right now? How are you moving? Um, and so I think that we could we could all learn a lot 
uh, by, by being able to do that. You know what? Um, I prayed for years when our kids were growing up. I used to pray every night as part of our dinner time prayer. And Lord, teach us the ways of the Holy Spirit that we would walk in them. Mm. And in some small measure, it's Psalm 8611. Is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I used to pray this all the time with our kids when they were little, when we would have dinner. And in some small measure, I believe God has answered those prayers. I, I probably should go back to praying it more consistently and earnestly. I've been somewhat lax about it the last probably five years, but but that was for many years my my ongoing prayer. Teach me your ways so that I can walk in them. And I learned that from Moses. Moses prayed it worked for him. Why wouldn't it work for me? Yeah, I didn't learn it from Moses. I learned what well, kind of Moses is Aaron Evans is the one that told me about uh he said, This is this is your scripture for the next 10 years. Yeah. You, you know, so we we started doing that. Um He's kind of like Moses, but, uh, <laughs> well, Ken, we've gone long as Again. you, but, um, this has been so all fun. of our podcast listeners soon. Grant and I are going to be releasing a series of 30 minute podcasts rather than these long mammoth podcasts. But anyway, it's great that you are long suffering enough to listen to us as much as you do. People seem to like it. So if you do like it, by the way, feel free to, uh, to like it and to subscribe and to share it. Uh, that would be great as well. That's a shameless plug. Uh, we'll be back uh, and we will have uh, a lot of fun episodes for 2021. Uh, we've got a lot of interviews that are exciting um, that we're working on getting scheduled and, uh, and then a lot of other topics that are going to be good. Ken, as always, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we look forward to, uh, to hearing from you again. Thanks so much. All right. Bye, everybody. Talk to you later. God is Not a Theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening.